This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone, and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast, with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. As we step back a little bit and we look at the post-2000, the 9-11 world, the Department of Homeland Security was established to be a counterterrorism organization, really focused on the physical threat from terrorists. Over the 15 intervening, 15, 16 years since 2003 when the department was stood up, the threat landscape has shifted dramatically. We have peer and near-peer adversaries. Great power competition is a thing again. Is China the biggest cyber threat we face, or are they competing with that label with Russia? So from a strategic perspective, I think they're certainly the top, if not you know, one, two with Russia threat. You know, I, I look at Russia as trying to disrupt the system, particularly from an elections and demo- undermining democracy perspective. The Chinese are thinking much more strategically, I think. They want to ultimately be a peer, if not dominant position to us, and have us more in kind of a client state where, you know, they're the primary economic power and we are so interdependent. We focus a lot on the big four of China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, but every country's developing tools. If they're not, they're not trying. We need to be thinking more like the British and the Battle of Britain in World War II. They hardened their underlying infrastructure because they were getting hit every day. And then they hardened their people, too. They said, here, you've got to understand what the threat is, and you have to take your own steps to protect yourselves. So we'll do what we can, but also, you know, there's a shared responsibility here. They were able to also go take strategic selective strikes against the adversary and put them on their back. Chris Krebs is the first director of the Department of Homeland Security's new Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. Prior to becoming the CISA director, Chris served in a number of other senior roles in DHS, including as counselor to the secretary. Prior to joining the Department of Homeland Security, Chris was a member of Microsoft's U.S. Government Affairs team, serving as its director for cybersecurity policy. I recently had a chance to sit down with Chris to talk about cyber and the new cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency he runs. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Chris, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. You have a very 
important job at the Department of Homeland Security. But before we get to that, I want to spend a little time asking about you and your background. When I look at your resume, it seems to me that you were groomed for the position that you're currently in. Can you walk us through some of the experiences you've had where you've learned about cybersecurity and the cyber problem? Yeah, it, it's I came about it in an unconventional way. In fact, I, you know, if you had to ask me if I was a cyber, you know, a technical person, I'm not. I came up post 9-11 in the Bush administration within the Department of Homeland Security focusing on critical infrastructure protection issues, but less from guards, gates and guns physical side, but more thinking through risk management and how to private sector organizations work with government to better enable risk management decisions. And then as the Bush years wore on and then shifted out into the private sector, was engaging much, much more closely with boards of directors and senior executives. One of the victims in the Western District of Pennsylvania, Chinese hacking indictments of the early Obama years, was one of my clients and worked with them to help, again, better enable and better engage with the various parts, intelligence community, DHS and law enforcement community. And that was focused on cyber. Yep, that was focused on cyber. And that was really kind of the first time the U.S. government stepped out and called China out for its bad behavior in intellectual property theft that's been, you know, in by others in the intelligence community. And General Alexander, I think, said it's the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. Could have been Hayden, but... It's absolutely true. Yeah, no, it, oh, and, it's, and it's, it's really not slowing down. So over time, then shifted over to Microsoft and led some of the the cyber, U.S. cyber policy work, but again, really focused on how can government best help the private sector, recognizing that ultimately the private sector owns and operates the majority of critical infrastructure, shared responsibility. We got to do this together. But if we learned anything, I think through 2016 and the Russian interference with our elections, it's it's no single organization, no single state, no locality can go at this problem alone. When you're facing a concerted effort from the Russian military, the GRU, the SVR, the FSB, it's going to take a team effort to push back and harden harden the underlying infrastructure, harden our, our people, our citizenry, and, uh, and then strike back when we have to. Chris, one more career question. So cybersecurity, one of the top issues of the day, it's going to be with us for a long time. I run into a lot of young people who want to get into this space. Mm-hmm. And they always ask me, what should I study? What kind of experiences should I pile up? What would you tell them? Well, there's, I, stepping back a little bit, I think what benefits us the most in the United States is our diversity of experiences, the diversity of our people, the diversity of the education system. It takes all kinds to be successful in this space. My background, environmental science, undergrad, and then law school. So it really takes a wide range of skill sets. I think the number one trait that I'd I'd encourage people to really focus on is their critical thinking and ability to communicate. Uh, Those two aspects, when you pile together, put you in a position to be successful, particularly in government, but also in the private sector and being able to navigate between the technical community and the executive suite. Being able to translate from the technical to the policy. You know, I think one of the challenges we're having right now, particularly with cybersecurity, election interference, you know, the information and influence operations, is that we've over-rotated a bit into the technical sphere. And we talk about things that we can't really kind of grok. We don't, we mentally struggle with in understanding the scope, the impact, the risk. So the, the 
nuance is not our friend in this space is really where I'm going with this. So if we can clean up the way we talk about things and be much more clear and concise and take out some of the bureaucracy, the bureaucratic language, and the technical jargon. Make it just cleaner for the American people to understand. Maybe better off. To your agency, mm-hmm. what's its mission? What are your core functions? What are you supposed to accomplish? So when you really strip it down to what we're, we're supposed to be doing, what we're trying to do, and what Congress is entrusted to do, us to do, we, we're the nation's risk advisor. And I use those words pretty carefully. I'm not saying we're the nation's risk manager, because I've already talked about 85% of the now, this is not – I don't have original sourcing for the 85% number. It's, that's long debated. But look, the way we work in this country is that private sector, government, if you own the network, it's your responsibility to secure it. My job is to, again, help those network defenders, the blue team folks, make the right decisions, make sure they have the information to enable them to make the right security decisions and then help provide policymakers the decisions to shape the policy and regulatory and legislative space. So that's, you know, that comes at it from an over-the-top, we're risk advisors, whether it's physical, cyber, whatever it is at this point. Three main mission areas. One is uh, cybersecurity leading efforts across the federal government, the, the civilian agencies to help protect federal networks. Second is working with the critical infrastructure community to help protect their networks as well. So that's the cyber side. On the physical side, really focused right now on a number of issues, including soft target security. And that's working with places of worship, schools, stadiums, sporting venues, places where uh, people gather. And I think as we step back a little bit and we look at 2000, you know, the post-2000, the 9-11 world, the Department of Homeland Security was established, as you recall, to be a counterterrorism organization, really focused on the physical threat from terrorists. Over the 15 intervening, 15, 16 years since 2003 when the department was stood up, the threat landscape has shifted dramatically. We have peer and near-peer adversaries. Great power competition is a thing again. So as we were structured for physical security risks, now we are much more focused in addition on cybersecurity threats. So we're taking a lot of those relationships we built over the years where physical security relationships with key strategic infrastructure. We're now working with them, that hard infrastructure that matters. We're working with them on cybersecurity issues. So you're first director. Yes. So it's now an agency, and it was elevated in DHS from previous incarnation as the National Protection and Programs Directorate. Why did the administration make that change? And what does it mean from a day-to-day perspective? How is life different today than before? Well, it's, it's funny because it was actually a thing that the prior administration tried to get going day one. It just there wasn't a um, we had to kind of demonstrate our ability to deliver success. And, and I think that took time. Plus, you also kind of had to think, is there a real demand for a for a primary cyber cybersecurity agency? So that was one of my top priorities when I came in. How things are different, what this really means. So this puts us on par with TSA, with FEMA is a true operational agency within the Department of Homeland Security. You know, there's some kind of more mundane organizational issues where now we have to, you know, have our own HR functions. We have to have our own CFO functions. We're not drawing on the headquarters support elements. But from a day-to-day perspective, it puts the button on us when it comes to leading cybersecurity uh, defensive efforts across the United States government. We've always been in that position statutorily, the secretary was. Now it's much more clear. We have stepped into that role. We're owning it. And I think we're making a lot of progress over uh, the last couple of years. And I think if anything, 
our ability to step up in 2000 after 2016 and help lead the nation's efforts to protect our elections. I think that that really shows that we have a role. We can deliver success and value to our stakeholders. So, Chris, you've identified China, supply chain and 5G as some top priorities that you need to address in the immediate term. Those are all interrelated, of course, but maybe we can just take them one at a time. So China, is China the biggest cyber threat we face or are they competing with that label with Russia? How do you think about where China falls on the threat spectrum here? So from a strategic perspective, I think they're certainly the top, if not, you know, one, two with Russia threat. You know, I, I look at Russia as trying to disrupt the system, particularly from an elections and demo- undermining democracy perspective. They're trying to knock us off our global position as a, a leader of the free world and lead democracy. And that's really what it comes down to is Russia is not trying to win the game. They're just trying everyone else to lose. And that's kind of the Gerasimov doctrine. The Chinese are thinking much more strategically, I think. I think there's probably some debate here. But they want to ultimately be a peer, if not dominant, position to us and have us more in kind of a client state where you know they're the primary economic power and you know, we are so interdependent with them and dependent on, on their supply chain. So they're not trying to disrupt us necessarily. They're trying to manipulate us, put us in, a, in that kind of, again, that client state position. And to do so, though... They're going to have to overcome our ability to innovate. They're going to have to overcome our ability to be out in front of the next technological revolutions. And they're getting there by intellectual property theft, acquiring U.S. companies, requiring U.S. companies to come into the Chinese market to join in JVs and tech transfer. But I think, if anything, I've learned in the last couple of years is that it's possible that, that China's overplayed their hand a little bit, that they have over exerted influence internally and particularly U.S. companies that were looking at China as a, as a big market to go into. They're, they're not getting the returns they expected maybe four or five years ago. Where are we in terms of intellectual property theft? Are they going after it as much as they ever have? What's the story there? So I think if you ask the FBI and, and some of their ongoing investigations and the counterintelligence efforts, you know, while it's probably kind of ebbed and flowed and waxed and waned over the last half decade or so, I think they're as active probably as they've ever been. It's hard to kind of quantify, really. Because you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, yeah. It, but but look, they're, they're active. I think the APT-10 indictments from this past December, and that was the Department of Justice indicted a couple Chinese actors that had been jumping into managed service providers and cloud service providers and these points of aggregation and pilfering all the intellectual property that they wanted, that shows that they're, they're still at it and they're as, they're as effective as they've ever been. If not, you know, they're, they're improving their trade craft. And rather than going that whack-a-mole, onesie-twosie approach, they're going to the points of aggregation and they're just sweeping up a whole bunch of information while they're doing it. Can you talk a bit about the Huawei issue and why it's so important from a cybersecurity perspective? So I step back and think about Huawei and really other Chinese companies, what, what we're seeing here more than anything is these companies, these tech companies and other companies coming out of China, they're just an extension of the Chinese state. They're being operationalized. They're being weaponized in a certain sense. They, you know, Xi, President Xi has even said it, you know, they don't walk the, the Western road of constitutionalism. 
they look at the world differently and they are using all instruments and tools of the state, including their private sector, private, I'm using my air quotes, to get what they want. And so what happens when, you know, we know that China has attempted over the last decade plus and not just attempted, but been successful to extract the intellectual property from the United States and our partners and allies. We know that they are aggressive and increasingly aggressive in cyber operations. So we know what them for what they are because we have experience and they've demonstrated intentionality. These are, these are adversaries. Second, we are building out the next generation of communications technology that is going to empower innovation the likes of which we've never seen. So we call 5G. 5G. 5G telecommunications networks will, you know, I think we're still trying to figure out what it really truly means, but, you know, it is going to, again, empower all sorts of innovation, machine-to-machine communication, automation, things that that we haven't even contemplated across our economy. And the third piece is we know that the quality of their engineering is not great. The the United Kingdom has established, because they've been working with Huawei for a decade or more, an oversight board where they pretty stringently review the, the tech product, and they've said that the quality of the engineering is objectively worse than their peers. So we've got a state that's demonstrated hostility to the United States, our peers and our allies. We have a tech sector that they've operationalized that is in a lead position to build out the next telecommunications networks, and we know that their product's not great. That just puts me in a position from a risk management perspective that says we need other options. We got to go a different direction. I am not confident, comfortable with with that uh, with that rollout. So, what direction should we go? Well, we need to look at a number of things. First is, you know, what does five G really mean? And this is obviously a much more <laughs> longer, drawn out conversation. But we need to take a look at what's the the rest of the market look like. What is vendor? How do we encourage vendor diversity? How do we use the other tools of the U.S. government to incentivize? additional players in the market or or bolstering more reputable, trustworthy players. One thing we can look at is why are certain Chinese companies successful on the global scale? It's because they come in with an integrated tech stack, they have low to no cost financing, and they're subsidized by the Chinese state. Those are all market advantages that in some cases are inconsistent with the World Trade Organization. We we need to look at you know holding them accountable to the agreements they said they would adhere to. And there needs to be a degree of reciprocity. They don't let U.S. companies go into the Chinese market with an integrated tech stack. Why would we let them come here and do the same? So we need to take a hard look at the way they operate within the markets in the U.S. and elsewhere and provide others options. You know, I, I was in NATO and Brussels a couple of weeks ago. Our allies are very clear-eyed about the threat from China. The challenge that we have is there, in some cases, are economic entanglements that even if the security services say, hey, we know what's going on here, but we don't have any other options. How do we how do we get those options? And and the, so your experience in talking to the allies about this is they get the security oh yeah. risks. Oh yeah, but they're stuck because they've got economic relationships that would be put at risk if they went a different direction. Is that fair? So yes, that's part of it. And other parts, you know, people just like, hey, I'm you know little old me, you know, I don't I don't have much to worry about here. I'm not the U.S. But that's just not. We also do not want to encourage the export of digital authoritarianism to the rest of the world. We want democracy to grow, and that's really kind of what's, what this is boiling down to right now. There's a self-sorting mechanism going on, I think, between democracy and the, the rise of authoritarian states. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Chris Krebs. 
This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Every week, an extended conversation at a restaurant in our nation's capital with newsmakers like Democratic Senator Mark Warner. What we want to try to do is give the American people the truth. President's attorneys Jay Sekulow and Rudy Giuliani. It is a no collusion, absolutely no obstruction. Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang. I think we should have a psychologist in the White House. Politics, policy, and a side of pop culture. The Takeout with me, Major Garrett. So, Chris, the concern about supply chain, can you let people know what that means from a security perspective? Sure. Well, you know, the more things we connect, the more interconnected we become between sectors and functions in the economy. What we're discovering is the less we actually know about the provenance of the things that we're plugging in. Who is writing the code? Who's building the hardware? Do we have the right level of attestation and certification across the componentry that's going into these products. So what we are, you know, at the same time, we're finding that nation states are able to exploit a number of these supply chain dependencies for their own intelligence and and operational gains. So what we are trying to do, working with the IT sector, the comm sector, and the rest of the federal interagency is get everybody on the same page in terms of intelligence and threat information sharing. We took a step two years ago, September 2017, issuing a a directive across the federal government that said, you know what, we've taken a look at Kaspersky antivirus products and said and determined them to be too risky to be deployed within federal networks. The decision or the rationale behind it was antivirus operates at a pretty broad level across systems below which we usually monitor. In fact, the AV is the thing that actually does the monitoring. Sweeps for data and really effective AVs, antivirus products, take the data they or the files, the anomalies they find, and they send it back to a central collection point. In the case of Kaspersky, that was Moscow. And we also know the legal system in Russia, it's not really known for meaningful judicial review you know, the balance and checks and balances that we have here in the U.S. And we know that there are laws that compel telecommunications companies and tech companies to comply with the intelligence services. So we kind of added this all up. And then you kind of look at the the relationships between Kaspersky leadership and the, the Putin regime. And we said, all right, theoretically, we've got a company that is delving into the the depths of the U.S. federal government that the FSB or the SVRGRU could operationalize. That's just not acceptable. So it gives us a good framework of looking at the technical piece, the legal piece, and the relationship piece, which we can look at Kaspersky, and we can look at, frankly, any organization to do a, a, a risk assessment of a product as it would be baked into the federal government, and we can help export that into the private sector to help them understand what their risk is. So, Chris, let's talk a little bit about critical infrastructure. First, how do you define critical infrastructure? So it's historically been defined across the lines of 16. Well, at one point it was 18, then it was 17, then it was 18, now it's 16. But it's those pieces of the economy that drive our country and our economic engine and would include things like the energy sector, banking and finance, emergency services, nuclear power, oil and natural gas. Again, 16 sectors. So it, but again, it's, it's these artificial buckets of the economy and, and how to group common players. What we've done over the last year is take a different look. It's not just the big buckets of the economy 
but it, we tend to get more focused on specific organizations, specific assets. And as I mentioned, with the interconnectedness and the interdependencies between pieces of the economy, for instance, the banking and finance sector, they're dependent upon power, water, and uh, a number of other sectors. So how do we tease out these mm. interdependencies? Mm. So what we've done is is drill down and say, all right, let's focus less on the specific organizations and more on the functions and services that are being delivered across the critical infrastructure community. We've bottomed out at this point. It's a living, breathing organi- uh, uh, list, but 55 national critical functions. So when you look at the banking and finance sector, it, it kind of nets out to five critical functions, uh, including wholesale payments, capital markets, and it gives us a more granular view of risk. And it's, it's more refined now than it used to be. It's evolved. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, certainly yeah, evolved. Yeah, I think yeah. we're in a little bit of a yeah. rut in terms of our risk management approach, and it's give, it gives us that more evolved approach. So, Chris, the public hears a lot about our adversaries accessing or trying to access our critical infrastructure with cyber tools, right, with the idea that, that if they ever want to use those tools to do damage, they're ready to go. How much do you worry about that? Is that something we need to worry about? Have we been compromised? Have we been able to keep them out? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So we certainly have been, we've certainly been targeted. If we saw anything 2016 elections that the Russians were attempting to get into our election infrastructure, there's you know probing, scanning, whatever you call it, mapping the internet happens every single day. If you go talk to some of the energy sector folks, you know, there are companies that'll say that they get, they get probed or, or whatever millions of times a day. I think as we've seen, the Russians have been active in the space. The Chinese have been active. The uh, DNI Coates recently talked about pipelines in the worldwide threat assessment. Uh, that's hard strategic infrastructure that's being targeted. And then the Russians, we uh, issued an alert a couple last year, in fact, about their attempts to map and get into the energy infrastructure. So we know what the adversary is doing. We know they're trying to understand and identify and get into our strategic infrastructure. And that's why it's so important that we build strong relationships with those critical infrastructure players. We can share with them the intelligence we collect and the risk management strategies. But we also need to do a better job, I think, of working with those infrastructure partners to get a real understanding of what the things that they view as risky what are the things that they are worried about? And then we can pull that understanding back and send it to, to your old shop and General Noxoni at the NSA and say, look, when your collectors go out, your guys don't necessarily know what the domestic infrastructure space looks like. Rightly so. But I'm going to tell you, these are the things from an intelligence perspective that you need to go collect against so that we can lay the right tripwires to help inform the network defenders back here in the U.S. Because, again, you know, we've got to do a better job of informing and, and tuning the intelligence collection mechanism. Chris, I know you can't respond directly to the recent New York Times report that said that U.S. Cyber Command was being more proactive and putting our tools in other nations' infrastructure so that we're able to act. I know you can't comment on that, but I want to ask you, does it make sense from your perspective that we have something like mutually assured destruction when it comes to cyber and critical infrastructure? I think that the nuclear deterrence model in the escalation ladder, con and all that, it works when you have a, a small set of players and there are barriers to entry and including costs and technological development, which is, it's just not reality in cyber. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a commodity game right now. And, and honestly, we, fo- we, do, we focus a lot on the big four of China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, 
but every country's developing tools. If they're not, they're not trying. So what I am increasingly thinking about, and this is coming up through my team, is we need to be thinking more like the British and the Battle of Britain in World War II. Well, they did three main things. One, they hardened their underlying infrastructure because they were getting hit every day. So they really hardened their buildings, their facilities. They hardened their, their buildings. And then they hardened their people too. They said, here, you've got to understand what the threat is, and you have to take your own steps to protect yourselves. We'll do what we can, but also, you know, there's a shared responsibility here. And the third piece is based on information, based on intelligence, based off their radar, their early warning system, they were able to also go take strategic selective strikes against the adversary and put them on their back. So this is a a blended operation space of enhanced defense, enhanced resilience, and then offense when it's appropriate. Offense for the defensive purpose. They play off each other. Play off each other. Yeah, we have a great relationship with Cyber Command and the intelligence community. I think we saw that in, in 2018 and the, the defense of the midterm elections. Secretary Mattis, Secretary Nielsen signed an MOU, a memorandum of understanding that, that DOD and DHS would work together to protect, protect our critical infrastructure, including elections. And we really operationalized that in a way that I don't think had ever been done before. And that included support from Cyber Command operators to the DHS defensive mission, potential incident response capabilities. So, Chris, I'd love to get you to talk for a couple of minutes about maybe what is a philosophical issue. It makes sense to everybody that the government is responsible for protecting .gov, Right. The question, though, is what should the government be responsible for in terms of protecting .com, right? What's the role of the government in protecting the private sector? How do you think about that? Well, I'll even, you know, add a little bit to this conversation. What about state and local governments? Mm. You know, we have a system of federalism here where elections are a great example. I keep coming back to elections. It seems that's what I talk about most of the time. Now, you know, Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution states that states will determine the time, place, and manner of how elections are conducted. And and why is that? Well, it's because the people, the states, decide who to send to the Congress and to the federal government to represent them, represent their interests. It's not the other way around. It's not the federal government saying this is how you're going to do this. So what we've got to do is make sure, strike that right balance of collective defense. And that's really where where we're going. We need to be able to put the information as we collect it, into the hands of those that can do something with it. Actionable intelligence into the hands of the network defenders. When we understand that there is an active adversary, whether it's a criminal group, a proxy group, a nation state, the U.S. government needs to act using a range of tools, both overt and covert, offensive, legal, sanctions, diplomatic. We have a broad range of tools, and we have used those in the last two years expansively and extensively against against the Russians. I think we're still, you know, trying to figure out what the true pain point is for President Putin and, and his regime. But there's no question that we've inflicted the, the right amount or an increasing amount of pain upon him. So, again, we are putting information in the hands of people that can do it. We are working to build capacity for the private sector. We're looking at the dot-com, the private sector, the critical infrastructure community, kind of along a maturity model. Think about a scatter plot with an X and Y axis. The X axis is awareness, and the Y axis is capability. So awareness is something that's the independent variable. Capability is going to be dependent upon how much you know and how much you invest. 
what we're finding is at the very top of that or the far, you know, the top right hand of that graph, uh, we're finding banks and energy companies that they make some, inv- they make significant investments. The big banks invest close to a billion dollars a year in their cybersecurity. So we're going to tailor a set of capabilities and tools to them that's going to be much more advanced uh, that includes really finely tailored intelligence. But at the bottom left, close to that zero, zero in the XY axis is where we're putting a lot of thought of how do we raise capability, just baseline capabilities. When we get out there and we do vulnerability assessments for state and local governments and small and medium-sized businesses, finding a lot of just legacy technology. What can they do better? Are those places that that need to do better, what what are the handful of things that they can do that would make a difference? So what we're finding, particularly, again, for elections, but just state and local governments, small and medium businesses, is run modern systems, patch, and update systems aggressively. So get on the latest operating system, patch your stuff when the updates become available. I'll talk about the Microsoft Bluekeep vulnerability right now. I've got shades of 2017 and want to cry and not patch it. If you haven't patched for the blue keep vulnerability yet, you need to do that now. So patch, run modern systems, two-factor authentication. Make it harder for the bad guys to get into your stuff. If we do the basics, 90 to 95% of the problem set, now, I don't want to say goes away, but we make the bad guys move. Let's, they, they, they're not using zero days today because they don't have to. Because we're still not doing the basics right. We're making it too easy for them to spearfish us. We're making it too easy for them to exploit misconfiguration. Again, let's do the basics right. But I got to say this. Doing the basics is hard. It takes commitment, understanding, and investment. And, you know, small and, and medium size. You got to stay at it, right? You, you, yeah, you do. And, and you, you, you know, when you look at building a company or doing a startup or a small mom and pop shop, you don't naturally think of, I need a dedicated IT director that's right. thinking every day about how our systems are running. Right. So my hope is that we get into a space in the next couple of years where, you know, there are easy buttons out there and, and the products that come from uh, the big tech companies are just, you know, inherently more secure. So, Chris, you've mentioned the 2020 elections a number of times. Obviously, cyber attacks played a role in 2016. 2018, they didn't stop. We did a better job, I think, in 2018. What's CIS's role with regard to 2020? Yeah, so we are working every single day with our state and local partners, those that run elections at the state level and the local level. We're working with all 50 states and approaching about 2,000 local election jurisdictions. The, the challenge here is that there are 8,800 or so election jurisdictions throughout the country, and a lot of them are you know small jurisdictions that don't have a lot of uh, technological investment and in, in sophistication, but but that's okay. We can we can work with anybody. We're actually in the midst of the second annual tabletop the vote. It's kind of a goofy uh, thing that that we do, but three day exercise. Get we have forty eight states playing and and a, and a thousand or so jurisdictions. Get everybody together and work through what does a bad day look like. Who are you going to call? What are your communication strategies? And what are your response plans? So what we are doing is working with these election folks. And helping them get to a more secure posture, including retire, le- retiring legacy system, getting that old stuff that may be 15 years old or out of support, making sure that auditability is achievable and that they are, in fact, auditing. We got to get to a position where you can go back and you can audit the process, and that includes some kind of paper backup. So because of the constitutional issues you talked about, do you yeah. have to wait for them to come to you? 
or can you go to them? We can go to them. We can't compel action, but that's just kind of the ethos of CISA is that we are we're public-private partnership embodied in the federal government, and we have to go out and we have to provide something of value. And two or three years ago, we didn't have much of value directly for the election community. Now we do, and that includes intelligence, information sharing, vulnerability assessments, regular vulnerability scans. You know, we are providing capabilities that, that states and local jurisdictions just haven't invested in historically because they never thought they needed to prior to 2016. Who would have thought that a random county in the Midwest was going to be targeted by the Russian GRU? It just beggared belief. So if I were the Russians or Chinese, I would be all over every presidential campaign, right? So uh, are you providing any kind of support to the presidential campaigns? Yeah, we've met with every single campaign, both sides, provided them, you know, here's here are the things we offer, here are the things you need to do. Call us if you need any of these assessments. The DNC and the RNC, the Bob Lord over at the DNC has done a great job of, of, again, saying this is not about going by and some silver bullet cybersecurity tool. It's about doing the basics. It's running on a commercial enterprise-grade email, multi-factor authentication, and secure messaging apps. I mean, it is that simple, the, the, the basics they can do. But you know, you, And do you get a sense that people are listening? I think so. Yeah. I mean, gosh, if you didn't learn right. from 2016, right. then, then right. you're not listening. I still think of the three-pronged attack of the Russians between targeting election infrastructure, targeting political campaigns, and the broader social information, the inf- influence ops. I think the second prong, that hack and leak against DNC and other political organizations, that was the most impactful. That was the most visible part of their strategy. And, you know, shame on us if, if we're not ready this time around. Chris, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. And most important, thank you for the work that you and your folks do every day to keep the country safe. Thank you. Great to be with you. Great. Thanks for having us. That was Chris Krebs. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Enya Guitart. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Wondery Plus.